Welcome to Afternoon Delight. Real people and real stories. A local podcast for local artists. Sunday. Welcome back to Afternoon Delight with me, Jordy Delight. Um, I'm feeling quite emotional the last few days. I've um, I've been having a lot personally happen. Um, work has been going so well, really well. I, I really am genuinely so grateful, actually, for how good work has been. Um, since <clears throat> since the middle of January. I've been doing a residency with On Five Cultural Trust and I've been doing um, this work called the Gratitude Initiative, which was an activism project. And it was all about um, working with communities and Fife on Zoom, asking the question, what did 2020 teach us and what are we grateful for in 2021? And you will have noticed that throughout season two, I have asked guests the exact same question of what did 2020 teach them and what are they grateful for in 2021? Now... I'd be lying if I said I hadn't done that intentionally. I absolutely did because I love to integrate my professional work and my um, sort of personal life. And it's a question that I felt at the end of 2020. I thought, well, what am I grateful for, going to be grateful for in 2021? And what did this year teach me? Because literally it's been such a fucking horrific 12 months that... We're literally, I think, this week is the anniversary for when I got told I would end up shielding. And it's been really hard because that's a year for me and it's sort of an anniversary, um, which is so surreal. And one of the things that I really wanted to in this podcast for season two was try and get a universal um, relationship for that. Because I don't feel like I am the only person that felt like the year 2020 taught them something, but I also don't think I'm the only person that really wanted to savour those moments in 2021 for the last sort of two months, because the last two months were crucial to get through over Christmas when they announced that we'd be in a lockdown until at least the middle of March. So I got every guest to answer this question. And my God, 2020 really taught all of us so much, so much, and there were so many answers, there was a lot of tallies for family and friends, and there were a lot of tallies for independence, strength, and the next guest, for me, um, is someone that I am grateful for that I met in 2020, because they came at the right time in my life, the show must go online really came at the right time in my life because back then I had felt for months that I had nothing work-wise, that there was no drive, that I was getting messed about in my personal life repeatedly and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I just really was struggling. And through my friend Maz contacted me on WhatsApp randomly to say, hiya, how are you? It's been so long. We've had someone pull out our show and we're doing a Christmas show and then Emily Ingram decides to contact me via email, who was also announced that week as someone that was a recipient of a commission I'd went for. Um, I say commission, that was actually my downfall because I thought it was commission, but actually it was a mentoring award to write a play. And we then met, and then I said, oh, you've obviously, you're doing that mentoring award, how's it going? Player at Studio emailed me saying that they just felt like my idea was fully realised, so they didn't give me it for that reason, but they gave me a letter of support to apply for Creative Scotland funding. And <clears throat> it was interesting to sit with Emily and get to know her, because she was working with me as my director through the show. And we ended up becoming such close friends and professional working relationship, but really close friends that have so much in common. And I only felt it was right that mine and Emily's relationship and friendship really blossomed towards the end of 2020 and what perfect way to end season two than with the person that I ended 2020 with. I am really excited to share this interview. She is, as Oprah would say, <laughs> she is the sister I never knew I had. She is the friend that everyone would want. Um, she is such a strong-willed, um, talented woman 
and a member of the queer community like myself, she writes really interesting work, thought-provoking work. She always keeps me guessing, and that's the people I love working with because I do that for people. And I'm so excited to share this interview with the amazing and talented director and writer, Emily Ingram. I will say, there are not many people in the world that I will get out of my bed hungover for, but this next guest and I went for a beautiful walk on Saturday and that walk helped cure my hangover. Nothing that I could code them all in a bottle of iron brew won't fix being outside. And it's so great to have on one of the most talented, in my opinion, directors based in Edinburgh. It is the gorgeous and amazing Emily Ingram. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm really, really excited about this. And also a little bit terrified. <laughs> this, is, this is you though, right? You're such a director that you like to be behind the scenes making it all go smooth. But the moment it's on you, you're like, oh no, I don't know what to say now. <laughs> can, I, can I tell you a thing? Actually, it, it came up during a conversation I was having with a creative team last night. But I, I once skipped school, like bunked off school, just because I knew I was going to have to stand up in assembly to get a certificate. So I like bunked off the entire day just to avoid having to like... Really? Yeah. That... Like, I'm quite extroverted, but I don't like the, the spotlighty side of it. And yeah, of course, you're a director first and foremost, and a writer, and then a performer sometimes. So I can see that for you. Um, it's it's going to be such a great episode interviewing you. I know that we're friends outside of this, and we work together. But this is going to be such a lovely episode and give you your spotlight moment, which I think is important. Um, I met Emily at the show Must Go Online, which we'll talk about later, and we done the Christmas Carol together, and it was wild because for me. I had not done Shakespeare for years, since 2014. So the moment I came and did a show with you and got to meet you, we then discovered on Zoom when we were talking that actually you live around the corner from me. <laughs> and it's, it's been so wild. And it just, I feel like that's one of those cosmic things to happen that I loved. So it's gonna be great to interview you. Um, so could you introduce yourself for me, Emily? That would be amazing. Yeah, of course. Um, hello. I'm Emily Ingram. I am a director based in Edinburgh. Um, and I also have other strands to my work. I produce, I stage manage, I make props, uh, I write. But directing is where my, my main passion is. Um, as Geordie has said, I live around the corner from Geordie and Leith. Um, and I've been living in Leith for two years. And I pretty certain it's the best part of the city <laughs> well I love that honestly that was such a lovely way you're such you're like me in that way I think you're a bit of an introvert extrovert like myself that way um, and I know that you don't like to boast about yourself and I, need, I don't like doing that either I think it's that EN, ENFJ mentality that people can be in of I want to do all these amazing things oh but don't don't say I'm a good person <laughs> <laughs> yep yep yeah. So this is going to be such a fun interview. So for me, Emily, I know, sort of know your story now after the last few months, but I would still love to hear about it again. You know, where did you grow up, study, work before you ended up pursuing theatre? Well, as you can tell from my accent, I grew up in the Highlands. Of, I, I grew up in Portsmouth, like as far down in the south of England as you can get without falling into the sea or the Isle of Wight. And um I lived in Portsmouth until I was 18. Portsmouth is a really great city um, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, there's a really wonderful arts community there, but it is a city that uh, has not always been treated well by certain sides of the political spectrum, shall we say. Um, and it's, it's a really... It's a place with a really mixed history in a lot of ways. Interesting place to grow up. And, and it's an island as well. Not many people know that about Portsmouth. It's actually, actually an island. There's only two bridges on and off it. And once every couple of years, like, you know, something will happen on those bridges that means that there's roadworks or a car crash or something. And the whole city will just completely shut down and, and gridlock. Um, yeah, it's, it's an island. Not many people leave it. Uh, but I did leave it when I was 18. I came up to Scotland 
um, to study. Um, I was really fortunate um, to be able to, to come up here to study. And I forgot to leave when I graduated. Um, I started building my career here as a theatre maker. And I mean, why would you leave? Um, it's There's just something very... In some ways, there's something very um, open about the arts community here, um, and and just also the the culture in Scotland does feel to me as an outsider to be a lot more open than England in some ways. And it was just a very easy place to feel at home, you know. I love that. And where? What did you study? Like, where did you study, and what did you study? I studied at the University of Edinburgh. My degree was English literature uh, with French and Portuguese. I thought I was going to be an interpreter um, and I was going to go all, all over the world interpreting conferences and, and things like that. And I actually um, became really ill in my second year of study. Um, and, and that's something that is still ongoing for me. And that changed really the course of what I was doing um, quite dramatically. I, I'd been involved a lot in, in theatre um, as a student uh, with the Bedham Theatre here in Edinburgh. Um, and I I got sick and wasn't able to do terribly much of my course and all terribly much of the theatre stuff I'd been enjoying. And it started occurring to me that it was actually the theatre I was missing more than this degree that I'd allegedly had my heart set on and was allegedly leading to my dream career. And that got me thinking. Um, and I, I suppose when I was younger, I had only assumed, I'd sort of assumed that the only career in theatre was acting, really. I hadn't thought about, despite being quite involved in student theatre and knowing people who were doing wonderful things with lighting, design, directing, I hadn't quite seen what a career path for anything apart from acting looks like. Just because, you know, in the news with celebrities and things, you hear about the actors more. Um, but performing wasn't very easy for me at the stage I was at with my health. Balance directing almost by mistake. And it really brought me to life. It really, I think it made the most of my skills and what I was able to do physically at the time. And just kept going with it. I think that was so poetic to say, you know, you fell into it and it was such a lovely uh, comment to make that, you know, it brought you back to life. I feel like that's such a lovely, lovely way to look at it. In my more pretentious moments, I'm like, I fell into it, but it almost rose up to catch me when I was at a real low. And yeah, I, I don't think I would be half as mentally well as I, as I am in my mental health now without without the opportunities that I had to explore directing at the time. And, you know, well, I mean, I've, I've made my career out of it. And, yeah. That is so true. And I don't think that's pretentious at all to say that. I think, for me, hearing it, I'm like, no, that's actually really apt for how I've been um, in ill moments and bad health and sort of things that drag was mine. You know, it brought me back to life when I felt like I had nothing to live for. So I totally resonate with what you're saying. It's so interesting. Um, for me, you know, what was that what got you into theatre? Was it going to the uni groups and stuff that you went, this is what I want to do? Or do you somehow feel like it was kind of in your blood in a way that <clears throat> at school you were actually into it, but maybe you just didn't consider it a career option in the future? What got you into it? I mean, certainly at school, I, I was lucky enough to be involved in school plays. Um... And I really enjoyed that, but I didn't see a career path into it. Um, you know, you sort of feel like, if you think acting's the only career path, you sort of feel it's changing now, but you feel, certainly used to feel like you had to look a certain way or be a certain way for that to be an option for you. Um, and certainly that's that's not something that I was always sure I could do. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I was really lucky growing up in Portsmouth. I lived, what, 20 minutes on, on the train from Chichester Festival Theatre, which is a huge producing theatre. And they used to do this thing where they do tickets for a couple of quid for young people. Um, 
like you queued up on the night and you know someone had like given like not turned up to take their seat on the front row they'd be like yeah have it for a quid whatever um so I like I was really lucky to be able to see some pretty huge shows um when I was quite young and that's been a real and, and you know has been and was a real inspiration so yeah Saying, oh, it happened because I got second, uh, sick in my second year isn't quite true. There was a kind of build up behind it um, from, you know, earlier on. I find that really... Build up behind it. Build up sounds horrible and quite sort of medical, doesn't it? But... I know what you mean, though, and I think that's so honest. I can understand on such a personal and professional level the stuff that you're talking about. What is it for you then that directing and writing is more of your thing then what makes you want to do that because for me when I was writing my shows I always had the intention of I want to create work that will educate people on topics when I'm writing and I'm curious as to what is about directing and writing that you really love that's a really that's a really interesting question thank you um I suppose it's giving voice to things that aren't given voice to usually. And in some ways, that's an education thing. In, in some ways, that it, it's about shining a light on the thoughts and feelings that maybe people don't think other people have or shining um, a light on experiences or groups that don't have a light shone on them traditionally um, in, our, in our society. And, and that's something that really compels me as a writer and director. But with the directing side of things, it's also there's also a real satisfaction that I get from making the most and the best of the group of people you're working with, um, pulling together your creative team and cast um, so that they are supported and able to do their best work and able to discover things about themselves as performers. You know, creating a safe space that allows them to do that is something that gives me a real sense of joy and job fulfillment. And I was sort of saying job fulfillment when we're in the arts feels horrible and corporate, but it, it is what it is what it is to use a terrible phrase. I don't think so. I think that's so true and I'm so glad you've said that. Do you feel, because I know that you obviously are very open about this, but you identify with the queer community and are bisexual. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that coming from that sort of background in a way makes you really want to sort of help showcase voices in the arts because for me sort of you know talking about queer issues in my work was a thing for me that I felt like these are important things people need to know about and stories that aren't heard enough do you feel that kind of connects that with you? Absolutely and one of the things I've been really interested in doing in my work over the last few years is not only shining a light on queer voices, but shining a light on queer celebration, because I feel like when we do get to tell our stories, it's only the traumas and the tragedies. And that's a real shame because there is so much joy in the queer community. And, and you know, alongside the pain in queer history, there there is a real joy. So being able to put Virginia Woolf's Orlando on stage, for example, and, and celebrate that story and... Um, you know, the gender exploration and queerness within it was amazing for me back in 2017. Being able to um, explore possibly um, asexual historical characters like Jacob Grimm, I, I know that's a slightly controversial statement because we don't entirely know, but being able to explore the potential asexuality of these historic figures who are normally marginalized or, or their sexuality is marginalized is something that I find really interesting um I think there does need to be celebration along with acknowledgement of the difficulties our community faces you're so right and I spoke ages ago for the Scottish Trade Union Centre about the um sort of disability accessibility and visibility in arts and I've told you about this and one of the main things for me to do was talk about the fact that I felt, as an artist who was non-binary, that if I didn't want to create work about my trauma, no one wanted to hire me. And I want to create work about a lot of things, 
but I didn't want to be everyone's sob story for like a few months of my life. I went, I don't want to be everyone's sob story. I want to do something different. I want to apply and create all this work. And people, it just felt like no one in the arts wanted to take me on unless I was making a bit of a sort of, oh, Jordy has CF and went through sexual assault. Let's make more money off that. Like, no, no, let's do, let's do other things. And when the show must go online, it contacted me. I was like, oh, this is literally what I need right now just to be able to do something that's not about me and my personal life. And I loved it. And that's why I feel like it was good timing that that happened. And you're so right that there's a celebration in the community. Not everything in the community has been negative. There has been great moments. I find this fascinating. And I knew I could, I could hear you talk for like hours, but um, I won't try and keep you too long tonight though. But um, it's really interesting. So in the lead up to the pandemic, you know, what sort of stuff were you doing before the pandemic hit? Um, I've always described my career as being a bit of a portfolio career or a patchwork career because I, I feel like I'm always doing little bits of, of different things. And sometimes it's difficult to see a completely clear theme through them. So right before the pandemic started, I was teaching at Edinburgh Acting School. I was directing their performance course um, as they prepared to do two shows. Um, I was writing a children's play about unicorns. I was preparing to tour a show called Grandmother's Grim um, to Sky in the Highlands. I was writing. And pretty much this day last year hit. And slowly the emails and the phone calls started to come in. And in the space of 13 days, I watched every single thing apart from my work with the school just disappear. And um, the school I, I worked with to take their shows online onto Zoom, like we're talking now, um, worked with the students to develop their performances so the shows could still go ahead, but everything just fell away um, so, so quickly. Um, and I, I'm, I suspect you felt this as well. I suspect a lot of creatives um, felt this as well. Because our jobs are so tied in with our identities as artists and, you know, our identities as people, that was really challenging. Um, if you're an artist and you're not able to make art or your gigs are cancelled and you're not able to, it's really quite alienating. Um, I, I don't know whether you felt the same way when this struck I 110% felt that. Like, for me, there was a bit of a thing that because of my health in the past, before the pandemic, and, you know, the fact that I was maybe going to need lung transplant at one point, you know, these these things happening at the beginning, I went, well, I've had this happen to me before. You know, the control's been taken away because I've been ill and I've not been able to regularly work and gigs have been cancelled and shows have been cancelled because of my health. So at the kind of beginning, I thought, this is quite normal for me. It feels like it's just not my health and it's the world doing it for once. But it hit me, I think, four weeks in and it got to sort of April and I went, shit, everything has been taken off me. Like, everything. And obviously, I got put in the shielding category. So I was like, at this time a year ago, I was like, what What do they mean uni's going to be shut till the end of May and I'm not going to be DJing next week? And what is Because I was so ignorant to the news. I never read or watched the news. And it was my therapist that said to me, how are you feeling about this coronavirus? And I said, eh? <laughs> I remember sitting in therapy like, my whole life has been a mess. Coronavirus? <laughs> like, that was literally it. And she went, yeah, in Italy, they're going into a lockdown. I went, oh, that won't happen here. Right. It just didn't even register in my head. Right. And and when obviously everything was taken, I went, shit, this isn't good. Because as a drag queen as well, you know, I've spoken about this for the last year that a lot of theatre stuff. I think it was the first few months everyone went, shit, what are we going to do? Places like the National Theatre, the BBC have been great that, you know, they've they very quickly worked out a solution. And we'll touch on to the next point, which is the show must go online started very quickly after that all happened. But for me, I did get that, what you said, that, you know, your identity. I think I was having an identity crisis in April. I was like, what is my whole life going to be now if I can't do what I was doing? And do I even like myself when I'm not working? Because I was working all the time. That when I had to sit with myself for 12 weeks, I went, I don't like who I am anymore. <laughs> I don't like who I've become. So I went on my spiritual journey the last year. But, you know, it wasn't easy in the beginning, especially it was... I started doing YouTube videos because I thought maybe I'll have to be a blogger on YouTube. And 
I, I only did four, and I went, I'm not going to do this again. Not really my style, but it gave me something to do, essentially. And it did lead on to other things. But yeah, I do agree with you. Like, it was very hard. And I felt, I feel like for you especially, to have all these things organised, I don't know if you're like me, but I used to be such a control freak, right? So if that was to all get taken off of me a year ago, I would have been like, what the fuck? I had planned all this and this is going to happen. And why is this all getting taken away? I don't think so. I would have pure freaked out. So I understand what you mean. Uh, I'm curious about this play about unicorns. Okay, um, so it was a play aimed at 7 to 11-year-olds and their families. Um, it was going to be for a fairly large cultural venue within the Midlothian area in order to celebrate the opening of something that they are no longer opening currently due to the ongoing situation. And it was going to be about unicorns as... The animal of Scotland and you know about people being different and us accepting them for who they are and it was it was this really sweet play that I was very very excited about uh, and it, it was one of the first playwriting commissions I had received as well which was so exciting and it might come back it might not come back we'll see if it's meant to be that's interesting. That's interesting. So the pandemic hits, you have things in the pipeline. And then Rob Miles and his partner decide to launch the show Must Go Online. Can you tell us more about that and what you've been doing with them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Rob Miles and his partner Sarah Peachy were in a very similar position to me. They had had gig after gig cancelled because of, uh, understandably, because of the coronavirus situation and just before we went into lockdown rob went oh, i'll maybe do a play reading group or something with everyone who's had a gig cancelled and he put that onto twitter if i was to start a weekly shakespeare play reading group who would be up for that and he got over 300 responses um had to pretty much do um a raffle for who got to read i think i'm getting the story in the timeline right here and he thought, oh, just like, you know, a couple of people and their mates will turn up to watch. They had a huge crowd on YouTube watching. They got onto Newsnight about the fact that they were doing this, about artists are keeping going during the pandemic by talking, uh, by reading Shakespeare's plays on Zoom. And they made it a weekly thing. And they did the entirety of Shakespeare's first folio in the order it's probably thought to be written between March and November uh, last year and as as you know they did a couple of extra shows as well they did a Shakespeare edition of Christmas Carol Shakespeare edition of Star Wars Shakespeare edition of Mean Girls and the way I got involved in that is after a couple of weeks of doing this and it having grown arms and legs and been much bigger than uh, he and Sarah expected Rob got on the Twitter again I'm saying the Twitter so I'm 100 years old Rob got on Twitter again and he put out a thing saying does anyone have stage management and producer experience who'd be interested in getting involved? And I tweeted him back being like, I think this is me. Got his email address and went, this is my experience. This is why you have to work with me. Pretty please, I'm really bored. You have to work with me here. Like, look at this experience. Um, and yeah, here I am in February um, still working with them. They haven't kicked me out of the team yet. And it's been a really, really exciting journey. Each week, they've tried to expand what they can do on Zoom and push boundaries um, of what's possible with digital theatre. And it's just been such an exciting thing to be a part of and exciting to meet actors from all around the world who've taken part and exciting to meet actors from just around the corner who've taken part as well. You know, it's fascinating because I, when I obviously it was Maz that put me and you in contact, right? And I knew who you were from the Birds of Paradise and Play It Studio stuff. So I was like, oh, I know of Emily. She's just been announced as this literally two weeks ago. That's amazing. Um, and she was like, yeah, we would love to have you. You'd be playing a witch in drag and you'd be playing like Tiny Tim. And I'm like, that is a wild concept, me playing like this angelic young man who's really upset and not well and he's sort of the narrator of the show and then this catty witch 
in drag. I mean, that's literally my two playing roles when you think about it, actually, right? And it was so fascinating for me. It was a learning experience as well, because as much as it was um, Shakespeare that I hadn't done for years, and I thought, you know what, I need a challenge right now, and I am going to say yes to this, because one, I want something to do that's fun. Two, I want something that's not about my personal life. Three, I want to get back into doing things technically performing rather than drag and doing acting. So I was like, yeah, I'll jump at the chance to do this. And one of the things I also felt was the digital theater aspect of Zoom that we got so many ideas that I didn't even realize could happen with Zoom that you were like, right, can you put a blanket over the computer and make it look like you're under a bed? And, and I'm thinking to myself, Jesus, you can actually do all this with like a Zoom like show that's quite wild. But when I'd realized, because I was telling my friends, obviously, when you would booked me to do it and said to them, well, I'm doing this, they said, the show must go online. That's amazing you're doing that. And I was like, yeah, it's wild. It's just kind of happened. Um, it was such a great experience. And it's one of the things I loved was the unity aspect that you had people like Wendy from RSC working with us, but then you had people in Canada. Like, you know, that was why I loved it because I felt like there was for me such a sort of blissful thing that we were all together doing something that before the pandemic, when would we have all worked on one show together from all these places? And I know that when I saw you last weekend, I said to you, oh, I'm, I've been chatting about, uh, about this with people saying, you know, I wonder what's going to happen in probably not now, but a year's time from now when lectures go, right, let's talk about the two years of digital theatre that the pandemic hit, because that's going to be part of history now. Like a lot of people like to sit in their bubble and go, oh, this is, this will all be over soon and we can just forget. And it's like, no, you can't forget history. Like, lectures are going to have to say, right, people like Janie Godley did this during the pandemic. People like the show must go online, the company did this. So th this will be taught one day, which I find fascinating. That really strikes with me. I go, wow, that's wild. And there have already been academics exploring digital theatre and also the huge amount of digital Shakespeare that there's been, because there's been Shakespeare more than any other writer performed um, in this medium. And it's partly because it's out of copyright and it's partly because everyone knows it, so it kind of draws a crowd. But there's also um, various theories floating out there that people go, people in um, Britain and America and, and other um, English-speaking nations go back to Shakespeare in times of crisis. And there's, there's examples of that post-First World War um, when there was a kind of identity crisis um, in the UK for all sorts of reasons and how the modernists um, adapted Shakespeare. You know, there's a huge amount of Shakespeare in T.S. Eliot's uh, Wasteland and The Hollow Men um, and... Um, just his work in general um and there's a huge amount of it in uh, Virginia Woolf and Hilda Doolittle's work as well like people go to Shakespeare when there's this instability and there's academics kind of pushing and prodding at that question as to why um at the moment and and you know throughout the 20th century they've been kind of prodding at that and it's it's an interesting one um so how have you found adapting it all for Zoom then? Because it's easy for me when working with you back in Christmas to go, right, well, she knows what she's doing and she'll keep me right because I'm clueless, right? Whereas how was it for you thinking about this as a director? You know, how am I going to make this work? It's really challenging um, because you, you don't know what, you only see a very small amount of people's space from, you know, this side of the screen. And so if you're like, oh, can you go to the right? You don't actually know that they're going to tread on the cats. Or if you're like, oh, can you go over? You don't know that there's a wire of their laptop that they're going to trip over. So you actually have to be quite risk assessment aware in order to direct on Zoom. So you don't accidentally get someone walking into their wall or something like that. And you know, I, I know that it's staff to kind of talk about that, but that practical consideration is something that you have to think about that you just don't in a physical rehearsal space. But the other thing that's really interesting is, I know some people say, oh, you leave your problems at the rehearsal room door. I don't really believe that um, in the sort of physical, non-digital world. I don't, I, people come in with their context. They come in with their bad Monday morning, like they just do. We're human, we bring it with us. 
But it's even more the case when you're working with people when they're inside their homes. Um, you've got to be far more aware of people's contacts and um, just the stresses of this world, um, I think, when you're working in that format. And that's, yeah, one of, one of the huge things to consider, really. Yeah. But it's also hugely fun because we're experimenting in this medium still. There's no right or wrong answers because we're all still discovering digital this. So as well as all these considerations and, and, and you know, potential frustrations, there's space to play and there's space to find stuff out together and there aren't right answers. And that's really exciting as well. I think that's absolutely amazing. Yeah, because I one of the things that always struck for me was how great you were at thinking about that. Like, you know, you would say, Oh, hi everyone. Um, again, rehearsals, you know, hope everyone's all right. Um, please obviously be mindful of your space and don't hurt yourself and trip over anything. And, and you would ask me questions like, right, so what kind of computer are you on and where are you placed in this bit of your room and is that a table there? You were so mindful of that because that these were just things I wasn't really thinking about at the time. I was like, yeah, I'll just do this. Let's jump about and let's see how this goes. Um, so it was good. And I could tell you by this point, it was November, sort of middle of November, that we were starting uh, to talk about doing this. And I think for me, it very much was clear that you had kind of, this was your, you so many shows you'd done by this point. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't the first time you'd tried this. And even then you were being very um, open-minded about adapting to my requirements. Cause obviously I've got CF and you have had your own health issues. So you were like, are you okay? Will that affect you in any way? And I'm like, no, no, it's absolutely great. So the accessibility was really helpful. Um, so it's actually fascinating to hear you kind of put all that together and did all that. And then as well as the show must go online, you know, things have been going quite good recently. You've, you've built, obviously, you're writing this play about Mary Shelley that you were awarded mm -hmm. Player at Studio and Birds of Paradise. Um, could you chat a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the play is called Write Like a Girl. It's the title I pitched it with. It is a title that is becoming... I think less relevant to what I'm creating here, but I'm I'm gonna stick with it for the purposes of this. And what I'm really exploring um, in this play is Mary's struggles with her health, but also her struggles to be different people for different people, which sounds really tautological and stupid, but there was huge amounts of pressure on her, huge amounts of pressures on her, not only as, you know, just a woman in the 1800s, you know, having to fit certain roles, but also everyone wanted her to follow in the uh, footsteps of her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, who was this really famous early uh, feminist and philosopher. Everyone wanted her to be exactly like Mary Wollstonecraft, but also not too radical. And they wanted her to, you know, be just, you know, the perfect mother, even though she, um, there was a huge amount of trauma um, to do with um, miscarriages and, and to um, to do with childbirth in her life. They, they wanted her to be this very archetypal 1800s woman while still following this radical feminist philosopher path. And there was just this really narrow line that she was made to walk by so many people in her life. And I want to explore those ideas of having to be different people for different people and what that does to someone's identity and what that does to their creative output as well um so that's what i'm tackling little themes to tackle you know just just little ones um and it's been so fascinating researching her her life and her health and the people she cared about because uh, they're all very big personalities. You know, you've got Byron and, and Percy, uh, Lord Byron and Percy Shelley, who everyone sort of remembers, I suppose. But her stepsister, Claire Claremont, who was a writer as well, um, was um, had a relationship and a kid with Lord Byron. She was a huge personality as well. And a lot of her history and her traumas have been kind of tucked away um, by, you know, by our society and, and, and by how we remember um, those people. I find that so important that you're bringing that discussion because basically I did a piece ages ago and I'll need to, if you've not seen it, send it, that was on uh, motherhood and identity. And um, what inspired me was watching um, a piece by an art company that looked at women and motherhood in the art scene and how women feel that 
once they become a mother in the art world, you know, it's very male driven. So that's them. They're a mother, then an artist, not an artist who's also a mother. And I created this piece all about Marge Simpson. Now, I know this, people might listen and might go, why the fuck are we talking about Marge Simpson? But there was a point to this that I wanted, I wrote a piece that I interviewed a few women that were mothers. And I wrote a piece that was all about that, put on your best smile, Lisa. You know, you've got to smile and everyone needs to think you're happy. And it was me doing Marge Simpson, doing that sort of women that were led to believe that they were a mother first and that's what they were ingrained to do. You know, that was driven in them and um, it's interesting hearing you mention miscarriage as well which is so important for me as a discussion because Tracy Emin who I'm obsessed with has done so much work on her miscarriages and talked about it in her um, autobiography that I've loved and it was really horrible to hear that she'd had such a horrible time with it and how depressed it made her and these are things that I'm so glad you're wanting to talk about because one miscarriage can really affect people that can have children that they then might find it traumatizing to go through the whole experience again it's such an important discussion mentioning these things and it sounds really fascinating I can't wait to read it and you've also got a National Fair Scotland credit haven't you yeah I was part of their scenes for survival series and I got the opportunity to work with this amazing writer and performer called B. Webster. And they wrote a piece called Squeezy Yogurt, which is about um, a young deaf person who's having counselling via Zoom. And they explain to their counsellor the issues they're having communicating with their colleagues over Zoom via an interpreter. And they explain um, their experiences of coming out as non-binary and their experiences of being queer and disabled and how COVID's affected them. It's just a very short piece, but it explores so much and the responses we got to it. Um, and the performer, um, uh, Brooklyn Melville, who played um, Alexis, the, the, the main character, the responses we got to their performance and to the piece were just really incredible. Um, I feel so lucky that we had so many people watch it and find themselves resonating with it. And also that hearing audiences as well as deaf audiences were finding things in there um, that, that were important um, to them. That's so interesting. And funnily enough, I know both of them from years ago, from when I used to go to the National Festival of Youth Theatre in Fife, I'd met both of them when I used to go every year. So, yeah, so again, I love that Scotland is, although it's such a big country, you know, so small in ways that everyone seems to know everyone. Um, you are a powerhouse doing all these amazing things and giving up a lot of your time to do such amazing creative work. What sort of things have you been doing to cope the last sort of 12 months now? Because... It's such a hard question to answer, but you know, everyone that comes on Afternoon Delight sort of shares their tips on how to manage things. And I can imagine you're like me that I burnt out this week because I did my residency with on Fife and I was working every day all day that I kind of didn't allocate myself good time to just have downtime. So I'm intrigued to see, to hear actually how you've managed to cope. I've been exactly the same. I lost all of my gigs in March and so rather than sit with my own brain I got involved in lots of things which you know and I'm really grateful that I was able to find work during pandemic as a creative like I really do appreciate and value that but I crammed my life with as much work as I possibly could and I got through to this week uh, the first time I have had a break in 10 months and I've gone I don't remember how to relax how do people do the pandemic do I watch Tiger King do I make sourdough what am I supposed to do do I yeah um do I take up knitting and I've realized this week that I do need to find ways to take time out that aren't just doing more creative work and I'm, I'm sure you can empathize with this as creatives, because we're doing what we love as our jobs, it's really hard to put it down. And it's really hard to not go, oh, well, I am taking a break because I love doing this, that and the other. 
So I am still learning um, how to do this pandemic and how to take breaks. Uh, so I'll maybe reply to this podcast in the comments if I if I work out uh, a good strategy. So funny. I feel like there are people I know like you. One of my first guests, actually, Rujazel, a drag queen, said, you know, I just... Um, just keep making art um Andy Warhol said you know and when people are judging it make more and she had said you know she's very much like that as a person that she just works constantly because it helps her shut her brain and, and and invest in it and I think that's so true um so I'm glad that you're honest about it that you are just a busy bee and that's who you are and what you do um you know for young people that are listening to the podcast if they're wanting to sort of pursue the arts right now when a pandemic let's face it the Scottish government have been doing great but we don't have the most supportive government as we both all know um we don't have the most supportive government for things like the arts um across the board and I would just be really um thankful if you could tell me what you feel like young people could um could benefit from hearing about it if they want to join the arts I think the really important thing is to find the people who build you up, not necessarily the people who will tell you what you're doing is great no matter what, like the people who will give you honest feedback, but the people who will build you up. Um, because it is an industry where it is so easy to pair into one another or compare or compete. And you need to find the people who make you feel good about the work you're making, make you feel good about yourself, I know it's cliche, but patience with this industry. Um, it takes such a long time, an unexpectedly long time to build a career in it. And all of the small gigs that you do, all of the you know bits of profit share or, or sort of doing assistant, deputy assistant stage managing, all of that does teach you something. I don't think I've had a single gig no matter how small where I haven't walked away learning something from it even the gigs where I've gone I hate this and I want to quit like I've learned something from doing it or seeing it through or or stepping away um every time no matter what I've done I have learned something about myself as an artist or something about the industry that's helped me and I think it's important to be able to take stock and, and evaluate what you've learned from something not necessarily in the creative Scotland like post-funding like creative evaluation tick box way but on a sort of personal level it's also important to know what success looks like to you because I think in our world we've got very particular ideas of what success looks like and it's about working out what pieces of that are important to you and which aren't um, and which you want to aim for and which you're happy to let pass you by um, yeah, knowing what success looks like for you, finding your your people is the best way to be, I think. That was incredible because actually no one's ever mentioned that and that's something that I totally agree with. Like, knowing what you think success looks like is such a powerful statement right now and it'll help a lot of people pursuing this try and achieve their goals. So thank you. Speaking of goals... What are your goals, you know, when things like theatre spaces and stuff start to open? Have you set yourself some goals? Yeah, I have some plans for how I want to change the way I write on a, on a practical level um, to do with finding better quality time to, to write in. But also I want to write less like other people and more like me, um, there's sometimes pressures to do what everyone else is doing in this industry, as you know. And I think the other goal I have is, I, I love the people I collaborate with, I really do, but I, I want to start working with new people and not fall into that industry trap of working with the same 10 friends. I'm excited for being able to be back in person in a room with those people, but I want to broaden my horizons and who I'm working with, you know? I totally agree. That's such a great um, great comment as well. You know, you do get stuck in that bubble of working with the same people all the time and then your professional life becomes your personal life. 
And then you have to work with these people that you've maybe had an argument with or you've dated and it hasn't worked and you think, fuck, <laughs> you think, fuck, how did I do this? Um, and it's like I said to you, you know, at the weekend when I saw you, I was like, oh yeah, you know, I've always had that mantra, you know, don't shit where you eat. <laughs> <laughs> Experience, it's a boundary that saved me so much hassle that I met so many people in the drag scene and DJs that, they date someone they worked with in the bar and then DJs didn't want to go in and DJ or people didn't want to go into work because it's really uncomfortable. Um, so I think that's totally valid and great. If I was to ask you the your favourite thing you've ever directed or wrote, what would it be? I think... The Grandmother's Grim, actually, a piece I mentioned earlier on. Uh, it's a piece that I wrote and directed. That's not a choice I'd necessarily make in the future. Uh, and it's a piece that went through a lot of different drafts, more drafts than any other piece I've written. And again, all of that taught me so much about who I am as an artist. I ended up performing in it at one point. Um, I, I ended up having to step up as understudy um, when the piece went on tour in summer 2019 and you know I hadn't formed much at all um, since I'd become ill so that taught me a lot about my physical stamina as a performer um, as, as well as you know all sorts of philosophical things about me as a performer but I loved working on Grimm I loved developing it um, the cast changed um, slightly each time um we performed it bar one actor who is in um, the Jakob Grimm role I mentioned to you earlier, um, who is uh, there throughout. And it's really interesting being able to work with the same performance to develop um, that character as, as the piece um, as, as the piece grew. Um, but really exciting to be able to bring in new people and new ideas um, to it as it grew as well. And yeah, it's a lovely piece. It's about the Brothers Grimm, who wrote the um, sort of famous fairy tale collection, but the women who they sat down and interviewed and took these stories from, and their lives, and how they were and weren't credited um, when that book was first published. Um, and there's a, there's a character called Marie Hassenflug in it who. Um, slightly fictionalised, but she sneaks out in the middle of the night to go and visit the brothers and to tell stories with them. And, yeah, it's, it's a fun piece. You know, it has a serious message of, hey, let's give credit where it's due, but it's a fun piece as well, and uh, it's a silly piece, and it's got a lot of elements of pantomime um, in how the, the fairy tale elements are told, and a lot of elements of object theatre, which is something I'm really interested in as well. I, I just loved it. Just loved working on it. Uh, I was due to tour it in 2020 and it got COVIDed, and maybe it will come back and maybe it won't. I am desperate to read this. You'll need to send me a copy because this sounds absolutely amazing and right up my street. I love the fairy tales by the Brothers Grimm, although it sounds like actually by other people. So that's very fascinating. I'm looking forward to reading that after this Zoom. Um, oh, this has been such a lovely interviewing episode. Me and you are just so similar, but and also different in our own ways. And it's it's really lovely actually to meet other people like you during the pandemic. Um, I am grateful that I got to meet you despite the pandemic. And you're gonna be the last person I ask this for season two, but we have on season two of Afternoon Delight, the infamous question, what did 2020 teach us? And what are we grateful for in 2021? And it, the floor is over to you like on that. Thank you. I mentioned it partially earlier, um, but as a director, 2020 taught me that we don't leave our lives outside the room. When we come into a creative space, we are our experiences. We are, you know, our bad Mondays and that's okay. And that can bring really valuable things into a room. And it's, it's okay to, you know, not be this blank canvas uh, ready to do creativity in a certain way when you come into a, a creative room. It really, really taught me that on a big level. And I'm very grateful to that hellhole of a year for showing me that. In 2021, I'm grateful that I, you know, still have creative work opportunities to put what I've learned into place in 2020. 
um, and opportunities, hopefully, once the vaccine's fully rolled out, to meet all the wonderful creators I've met around the world, thanks to the show must go online, thanks to things like this um, in person. What a fucking year it's been, eh? <laughs> I didn't know we were allowed to swear. I would have been swearing the whole way through. I've been, like, really moderating. Yeah, <laughs> you're very lovely and professional. You and I couldn't see you swearing, but I am more than happy to swear. Um, what a 12 months it's been. This has been such a great interview. Every episode of Afternoon Delight gets ended with an inspiring quote or a quote that you just live by or that sums up you as a person. Would love for you to share your quote before we finish the episode. I'll give you a bit of context for it. Um, I'm terrible for saving memes to my phone and not remembering where they're from and never deleting them until my phone's like, I am full. You can't read your emails until you delete some memes. And there's one, don't know what it's from, but it's a picture of a brick wall with um, a neon sign, a neon writing sign on it. And the sign says, be kind, be useful. Tomorrow we'll do it again, pals. And I love that. Oh, that was absolutely beautiful. What a way to end the Afternoon Delight season two. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining me, Emily. It's been great. Thank you so much. We will definitely do it again, Emily. We will do it again. That was just such a beautiful way to end the episode and season two of Afternoon Delight. Gratitude for me was such a huge thing that Oprah Super Soul conversations taught, which was something that 2020 taught me because I started listening to Oprah Super Soul, which is why I started this podcast, because I wanted Scotland and the UK to have its own Super Soul conversation, but for local artists who really were affected by the pandemic. I had no idea Emily had a show about unicorns in the pipeline, all these other things happening. And I have every confidence that Emily will be bringing them back. I will happily help support her to do all that. But I had no idea. And that is why we do this podcast. And I will get a bit emotional saying this, but 2020 taught a lot of us the value of the arts and the value of art and the healing impact that other people's art can have. And I'm grateful in 2021 that I've had all these artists on season two share how they were impacted by the pandemic and what they learned from it. And I thank Emily for being my final guest on season two and also one of the final relationships to come out of 2020 for me. I know that me and Emily have a long, long journey of working together. I can just spiritually feel it. And we are applying for several things together. And I hope that she knows just how incredible she actually is. Because Emily's like myself. Emily, at points, has had difficult moments during the pandemic. We all have with her health and her, her own life. We've all been going through it. And that isn't to invalidate anyone else by saying, you know, we've all been going through this, so you're not important. It's the polar opposite. It's to remind everyone that you're not alone and that hope is coming. And that brings me on to my next point, that in season three, when I return in two weeks' time, we will be looking at hope and what hope means to people and what everyone's hopes are for when normality and life stops pausing. Thank you so much, Emily. Please give Emily a follow on Instagram, on Twitter, and also check out her website for all her work and the show must go online. They're incredible. And keep an eye out for what me and Emily do in the future. It's going to be such an exciting time when things do return. But until then, I'm going to take some time to process all the amazing stories I've had. And you can go and listen to any of the episodes that you've missed from season one right until now. We're at 34 episodes that aren't including mine of Afternoon Delight. And I think that is something I'm so grateful for. Until then, stay safe and remember to breathe. Afternoon Delight. Real people, real stories. A local podcast, a local
Arte.